The following is intended only for mature audiences. Discretion advised. started, I just want to show you this because you didn't get to catch it out last time. This is an ad for Spawn 16, 17, 18 that shows that art by Greg Capullo I was talking about that they, I think was too suggestive. Oh yeah. With the half-naked chick. Capullo did do a different version of that same concept. It was a, a more modest, but it's still naked chick being protected by Spawn. So he didn't quite let it go. Great cover, great cover. It would have been better than at least one or two of the covers he'd used for these issues. So let's talk about Spawn 17. Dedicated to Ross Andrew who had died just a few months earlier so that explains why he was picked I thought it might be because of the Spider-Man connection since both McFarlane and Ross Andrew had runs on Amazing but I think it's just because he happened to die at that particular point in time R.I.P. So we're starting out with Spawn 17 What'd you think of the cover? I thought it was okay uh, Here's the thing I've been doing videos of like top 10 and top 20 combo character covers for the little YouTube page we got started I haven't done very many I think this was only like We have a YouTube page? Time. Yeah but I just barely started it and there's not a lot up there There's a, a video from Ania for the Amazing Heroes podcast okay. where he talks about those creators it just so happened I had some video I recorded back in 92 related to Omega 7 the publisher and I also put up a, a greatest Firestorm covers and I think by the time this is out I'll put up the Aquaman one and I'm working on a small one because it makes sense since we've got Spawnometer but I'm also waiting until issue 300 because I know he's going to do a bunch of variant covers and we'll get to see some stuff and I remember you were dogging on the cover of issue 16 and I gotta tell you I actually think that's one of the best Spawn covers of all time oh my so, god no yeah, I'm sorry so yeah, unless you decide you're going to contribute to that video whenever it does get put together issue 16 is actually among my favorites okay this one's just okay again it's distinctive enough because you're seeing him crawling through the sewers very ninja turtery yeah it feels very much a 90s vibe but it's also distinctly different from a lot of the other spawn covers spawn covers suck they're so interchangeable and they, they were so repetitive and the first couple of years were better but once you get past that it's just the same thing over and over again repeating themes so at least him pulling a ninja turtle snake eyes kind of thing yeah. on this cover at least that doesn't look like all the other shit that's going to come out. And remember, kids, give us a like and subscribe to our channel because everyone says that. We start this one, and actually, this one started out pretty cool because it has my bulge laughing. Yeah, um, a lot of text, a lot of yeah, text. a lot of reading. Very McFarlane-esque to have him talking so damn much. But at least when it wasn't punchy, kicky, punchy, kicky. Spawn is talking about how he hears this voice that sounds like nails on a chalkboard. And that is one thing we neglected to mention when we were covering issue 16 is that, as in the cartoon, Al finally goes back to his grave and digs it up to see what's inside and he finds his corpse. I don't know how he identified it positively because it was skeletal at that point but he does realize he sees his writing ring and he does realize that that's his body and that he is in a loner body at this point and he gets so then, busted up. So then, is his, so then are we to assume that his soul is in this protoplasm jizzapool whatever? Well, I, I guess that's something that he'll hopefully address later on. Like it, is his brain in there? Is it like so is your soul also connected to your brain and your thoughts so you take that with you? So then he imagines himself to look like a man or could like Spawn have come back and been a woman? It's like a swamp thing. Yeah, kind of like, you know. I don't know. It's a, it's like a fair a, question. Hopefully it gets addressed. Yeah, because I, I just thought about that. Like, yeah, if his, if his body's there and he reforms himself, because I mean, it's it's still one of my favorites where he, you know, he tries to make himself look human and he comes back as a white guy with blonde hair. And I always thought that was just a crazy. He'd rather look like hamburger than he <laughs> yeah. be that. Yeah. So. I called that the hamburger head look, if I recall correctly. When he's unmasked, I think one of the action figures, they called it hamburger head. Didn't at one point he have like shoelaces 
holding his face together? Spoilers. Oh. We'll get to that. Okay. Not that long, much longer either. Really? Because it's all jumbled, jumbled in my mind now. Okay, so anyway, um, Malbolja is grabbing Spawn and taking him to another place because he wants to show him, I guess, where the portal to hell is in Nevada. At this time, the angels are in heaven. They're recharging the anti-spawn. And they're getting ready to launch him, but I guess they're supercharging him yeah, to get ready yeah, for another yeah, fight. And also figuring out where to direct him. Yeah. I don't know if they knew where Spawn was yet. Well, no, well, because well, remember, well, we'll get to that in a moment. Al's pissed. He's screaming. They teleport. Well, Malbolge is taunting him. Well, yeah, because he's, really well, he's showing him uh, Summersville, right? Or, yeah, Summersville. But I don't Summersville. understand why Malbolge is taunting him because you would think that would make him less inclined to join up. Well, I, I think he likes playing with his soldiers like that. I, I think, think well, he likes tormenting them. He's trying to break him down. I just don't know if that's the right route, but Malbolge is a big-time demon. I guess he knows better than me what breaks him out. You do get a sense that he enjoys the torment aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. It's his thing. As Al is getting prepared, all of a sudden the anti-spawn is reintroduced. I think it is a nice full-page splash, but the only thing that gets me, and I'm sure it's intentional, and I'm sure there was a little of humor intended, but that he's got the spawn symbol bump with, cro- yeah. with the no-smoking sign over it. Yeah. It was just way too Deadpool. I realize this predates Deadpool doing stuff like that, but it's just a little too Deadpool for me in retrospect. In this pose, he actually looks pretty damn cool. I like the costume design. Yeah. Uh, it's just spawn with a motorcycle helmet with spikes. And so at this point, Terry and Wanda are drinking. They're watching TV where they're talking about the disappearance of Wynn and that one right wing conspiratorial guy is mentioning his ties to young blood that weren't resolved and thinking that might be part of the reason why he's disappeared. Wanda talks about how she never liked the guy who gave her the creeps and that's about it, right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah, because then we go into punchy, punchy time. And so the anti-spawn and spawn are battling. Spawn's a little freaked out because, again, anti-spawn is, if not his equal, maybe a little more powerful than him, more raw. He can certainly use the power with much less reserve okay. because he's just going full on energy. Balls to the wall. And Spawn's been taught to be reserved in this shit. But Spawn's also used to taking some blows and just coming back from it where this guy is out to kill him and seems like he's got the power to do so. Yeah, I mean, he actually even wounds him at one point, knocks him into the church when they're at a... Uh, well, they're in Simmonsville. Simmonsville. So the church he was married in, recreated they from did. his memories out of psychoplasm. As they're battling, there's all these demons in there. They're ready to kick the shit out of Spawn and then Anti-Venom walks in and is like, no, he's mine! And he does this angelic blast which sets all the demons aflame and they're all screaming. I do wish Anti-Spawn had more of Jason Wynn's personality. He really is like Spawn in his single-minded whininess. Well, he talks no, about... he's how- mine! You can't have him! I will destroy him! It's my whole mission when- in life is destroy Spawn! Over and over. Well, no, but he keeps talking about how like the burning light in his mind is driving him to do this. Like, I do like the aspect that he's doing this to relieve the pain. Kind of I, a I, return to the living death. Yes, yeah, so I'm about to say, you know, it makes the pain go away. So I see him as suffering, and the only way to make him stop suffering is to destroy Spawn so, so that it'll go away. really overpowered. He may have so much power that he needs to ejaculate <laughs> this juice at Spawn, the object of his attention. Skeet, skeet, skeet. And of course, the, you know, the city's burning, the general's there, they can't oh, find yeah, win. General, Major Vale. Major, oh, Major Vale, okay. Like that. But yeah, he's like, I just got here and everything's already falling apart. Wind's missing. I'm going to go in. It's like, what the fuck are you going to do, you old Wait, He's from Duke, from uh, G.I. Joe. Anyway, so Spawn is getting his ass handed to him. Spawn then realizes that his suit is actually wounded, that it's a living, breathing. They make a point of uh, referencing among the demons that he is neurologically connected to the Spawn outfit and that they're feeling each other's pain. And I guess they're trying to emphasize that they have that symbiotic relationship and both of them are suffering. 
suffering under the anti-spawn. But he, he says he can feel the suit in pain. And so he uses the power to teleport. And of course, you know, when he teleports... I didn't realize Spawn teleported so much, but they, this is a, this I, is another major... Well, I don't remember... Him, the third time he's teleported, right? But I guess that was something they did in the early books, because I don't remember him doing that that much later on in the books. I don't know how much energy it takes. Well, I mean, we, we got... Well, it, it did they the, remove the clock by now? The what? The clock, remember? Where he was, we haven't... We don't see it in any of the Grant Morrison issues. Yeah. So I don't think they're authorized to run down the clock in okay. the guest appearance. Okay. So I was going to say, I don't remember I, seeing I the clock. I do like this one once again, it becomes the meat ski as he flies <laughs> out of Smithsville. But this was something I thought that was strange. So when he reappears and the anti-spawn is right behind him because he, he appears next to some homeless guys in his alleyway. Well, he teleports to, not only is it spawn alley, but uh, Grant Morrison specifically says it's the Bowery. The Bowery. Which is much more specific than we've ever had before. And I'm curious to see if that bears out over the course of the series. Because the Bowery is, is a very, it, it's a real place. It's in lower East Manhattan. And it's like a 10 to 20 block radius. It's near the East Village. Uh, he's actually, oddly enough, you'd think Spawn would be closer to Daredevil and Hell's Kitchen, but he's actually closer to Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum, which I guess is somewhat appropriate as well. But you can literally go to New York and go try to find Spawn Alley because of that specific reference. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Uh, CDGB was there and a, and a bunch of famous people either lived there or passed through. Yeah. Joey Ron, I think, used to hang out in that area. I, I remember hearing about the Bowery. And so the homeless guys are there. Spawn's telling them to run away. And the anti-Spawn appears. And I thought it was really interesting where he tells them, I can follow you through any place, any time. So does that mean that Spawn has the ability to time travel? Well, if he doesn't, apparently anti-Spawn does. Yeah, because I think that was kind of a... I thought he was trying to let him know, like, you know, in a sense, you can... I, I mean, I don't know. Could Spawn teleport to another I, time? I think McFarlane always tried to make it clear that Spawn's powers are unlimited in scope, but limited in power, and in, in, in energy, in, in the propulsive force that would allow him to use powers that extreme. Okay. So, yeah, it makes sense that he could potentially time travel, but I'm sure the clock would run down really low after doing something. And that would kind of suck because then it's... Uh... I don't... Too sci-fi. I think yeah. Spawn works better in horror, dark fantasy area. I, I agree with you on that. So they're battling... Anti-Spawn has a new ability where in his mask he does a Cyclops-type laser fire. Which... He just has general energy projection, though. I don't know that it's all that different from... But he's projecting it from his hands, his head. Basically, any orifice he has, he's be, he has the ability to shoot this angelic beam. Spawn is now suffering. Now, this was a cool... I really did like this page here where you see the anti-spawn and he has this cool blade on a cross that's kind of a... Um who would you Cy, say? It's like a side blade. Yeah, like side blade. Yeah, there you go. Like side like a soul blade. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, that's pretty cool looking. And uh, Didn't they do an action figure where he had that? Like an alternate arm or something or a snap-on piece? No, I don't remember. I think they did. I had a lot of the toys pass through my shop back right. in those days. I mean, I would love them to do yeah, it. We used to get cases of the spawn toys, so they right. wouldn't shock you. Uh, not too many, not too often. Usually what would happen is I'd have the guys go out and they'd pick up the stuff at the toy stores and then they'd trade them for comics and stuff. That's how yeah. we would get our stock. But we did occasionally get the cases there too. A lot of spawn trade was a big deal around. Was this a cool looking figure or not? I, I don't remember. I remember. think I remember liking the figure. Yeah, I don't see that figure in the wild, especially since we've started the podcast. I've actually looked and picked up some spawn figures. I they had them pretty cheap in Japan, but I didn't think that I could deal with the travel, like yeah. actually getting them into the states and having room to pack them and all that kind of stuff. But Redeemer was not one that I, is not one I see very often. I see a, a lot of spawns, a lot of trimmers, a lot of violators, a lot of Angelos, particularly Cosmic Angelos. There's a lot of those floating around, but I never see Redeemer and the 
only time I see Chapel, he's really pricey. Well, because I remember when you and I went to that con. A lot con. of wet work, too. I see a, the wet works and, and some of the young blood figures I see very often. Bad Rock, I see all the freaking time. Yeah. Well, I just remember one of the cons we went to, this guy had a box. And, I, and to this day, I kick myself in the ass because he, he was literally selling them for like two bucks a, a character or two bucks a, a, a figure he, in the box. Guy I'm thinking of, I think it's five bucks. Was it five bucks? I think it was like five and ten, depending on the, the what figure. Well, no, 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 you're right. No, no, it was five bucks per figure. But if you bought multiple ones. Five he, for 20 or Yeah, something. well, no, because he told me, I'm, I'll go as low as 250 a figure if you buy so many. And I was like, oh, okay. And he had quite a few in there, but I was kind of like, eh, I don't want to carry them. And I, I think I had picked like five or six of them that I was like, well, these would be kind of cool just to take out the box and, I don't know, melt them down. I don't know, fuck what you do with spawn figures. I mean, you don't play with them. But I remember thinking, Well, you've got them on a wall in your comic book room. Well, yeah. Mine, and I sometimes display them and then they end up usually ending up in a box somewhere. So, wait, wait, wait. No more uh, cosmic battles in the fucking cupboards anymore with you? I retired my Hall of Justice where I had some of these guys hanging out for a bit there. I just, it was getting in the way and the scale was too far off. I just, I just love, I just remember that day coming to your house and fucking going to get a glass of water and open the, open the cupboard to get a glass oh, and there's yeah, I forgot a fucking DC that. figures fighting in there in the fucking dishes. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck is this? Well, remember, I don't know if you ever made it to my original shop, but I used to have dioramas up around there too. I didn't really do it. But this was shop. in your home. Yeah. Well, I didn't have a lot of food, so take advantage of the cupboard space. I but I, I just remember I was like, where's the clip? Where's the cup? I opened the cupboard. And I'm like, why are there fucking DC figures fighting in here over the dishes? I just thought it was hilarious. Where so. do you want them to fight? True, true. That's true. Um, so that's pretty much it. That was the end of 17. So basically we called it. Grant Morrison decided to do punch, punch, kick, kick, fit, kick, street fighter for an entire yeah. issue, essentially. And that's a pretty big disappointment, I think. But uh, it, I, it, it, I, he, he set up so much cool shit in the first issue. And then this whole second issue is just anti spawn kick and spawns ass. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's dark snacks. Oh yeah, it, but it, you're right. It is a little anticlimactic because it's they're just well, punch punch. Well, it's not a climax though. Well, it's this, true. This, okay, this you're right. You're right. You're right. This is the middle. It's too much punch punchy kiki kiki, and I don't know. We'll see. It's still better than when McFarlane does it. It's still more yes. entertaining. It's better rendered. I thought better, so. better ideas. I did. I did like how Malbolgia was really sadistic. There's a there's a scene where he sees Wanda and him on a memory of them on a boat out on the lake, and he's running, and and Malbolgia's laughing at him like that's not true. That's you know that's a memory. That's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. You know, as up to that point, we didn't really have that much cool stuff going on. So, anything else? No. We're starting out with issue number five of Pit. In this story, we're taken to Brooklyn Naval Yard, where we're reintroduced into, what was her name, the female officer? Bobby Harris. Bobby Harris. Uh, the female yeah. cop that had secrets. Expensive penthouse and superhuman strength, and we didn't know what was going on with her. Well, we find out that she's part of a super team. Axiom Enterprises, heroes for hire, essentially. They're, they're mercenary superheroes that work for a company that specializes in DNA research. Or the public thinks that their specialty is DNA research, but apparently they do the superhero thing on the side. Well, you have the professor who's a professor x type character a saurus i think it's saurian saurian is he a thesaurus <laughs> a thesian yeah there's a page in there where they name drop everybody kite is the white dude with the blonde hair and the goggles he can fly and he has wrist cannons that he fires at people and his name is kite k-y-t-e yes 
and then the chick with the mullet? I don't know. They, I don't think they ever identify her, and I don't know, think she appears anywhere else. Yeah, because I, I remember when I was reading this, so I'm thinking Stegosaurus here is a thing-like character. I would say Abomination. Abomination? Doesn't yeah. he look like Abomination? Well, because he's trying to do a clabbering time. Right, but notice, notice he's dumb. I thought he was supposed to be like a dinosaur with like a tiny brain. Maybe that's what they're going for, but he also has a fixation on Bobby Harris, yeah. who is really named Raiki, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. I thought that they were doing the Ajax-Atlanta relationship from the Hulk again. Remember the Pantheon? Yes. Because it's sort of the same thing. as Pitt is the Hulk of the oh, group. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's got these group of support staff that is True. working with him. You've got the big dumb one who's the, the one who's basically the muscle when he's not around. That's Saurian. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the spunky, badass chick who he's got a big crush on. So it's the same dynamic. Yeah, I, I could see that. Well, they're discussing... The, a- who's the other guy? Is, is he supposed to be Asian or black? I can't tell. Or is it like a mix? Is he a dark-skinned Asian? I is thought he, he was like face? a Blade-type character. What was his name? Shiro. Yeah, and he is the... I think his full name is John Shiro. They say it in one of the later issues. And he's like the martial arts dude with the swords and shit. Yeah. So we're introduced to the team. Uh, Bobby's come back. They're talking they about their... They hacked a satellite and watched, watched her the battle, battle yeah. And she's like, you watched me embarrass myself and you didn't come to help me. They're like, we didn't know it was going to escalate that quickly. So sorry. Well, and they're, they're asking what happened to little Timmy. And so Timmy's in the hospital. For some reason, Timmy's hair fell out because yeah. of his interaction. I guess because now he looks more like the alien that's I, inside I of him. I think that the, something to do with the power of the alien and maybe exploiting that power to destroy Zoivod causes his hair to fall out and him to go into a coma. Let me ask you, Del Keon had a writer help him with this, right? He had a person who was employed as a writer. Okay. We'll get into that after we cover the issues. Because I, I just want to know who wrote the dialogue to this. Brian Houghton is the Brian Okay. Has he written anything we would know? No. Okay. Yeah, I got that vibe. Okay. Just want to make sure. And Pitt's doing a lot of the Hulk poses on top of buildings, brooding. Yeah, he's overwatch- He's watching over Timmy in New York City, what- making sure nobody comes after him, particularly the Creed, his his alien race that's got it in for the dude, and uh, particular Jerob, the alien creature, yeah. the light creature that's, that's inside, inside of Timmy. Timmy. Now, to me, I never understood the chains. I right. get the spawn thing. Right. He literally has gauntlets, a belt, chains around his neck, chains around his calves. Well, it's- and in the issues that we were reading, they have an ad for the Claiborne Moore statue, where he's got the pale white skin with the fangs, which makes him look like a vampire, which yeah. I thought was an odd thing to do. I kind of liked him better when he had the flesh tone. But he's got the chains across his chest, the chain belt, the chain bracelets. And I was just thinking, why all these chains? Besides the fact that chains were in back then, Ghost Rider, I think, is the person most responsible for that. And in particular... Spawn had chains Spawn, everywhere. Course, but the one I think about is Lobo, since he looked the most like okay. Lobo and had more of the history. And particularly the chain gauntlets, the chain yeah. wristbands, were very much a Lobo thing. But he didn't use the chains. He didn't attack people with the chains. They're not holding up his pants or anything. So why does he run around with chains on? Wouldn't it just tip the enemy off and they'd hear them jangling and came at them? <laughs> I remember when I saw that picture, the first thing was, this, what's with the fucking chains? It's just like a uh, lay field with his pockets. There's like chains everywhere. And I thought this was kind of cool. You know, there's this woman, she's walking in the alleyway. She was uh, stealing. She's hot, by the way. She's got like the, the bangs and the long straight hair. She kind of looks like the chick from the father figure video with George Michael. But Frank, did you masturbate to this book? No, no, no. Okay. No, I didn't make your pages sticky when I borrowed your okay. pants. But I just think she's cute. She's got the short skirt, like the leather skirt, like the fur coat and everything. Huh? She looks very domineering. At least now we know what Frank's into. He gave us a quick description. So she's walking. There's some thugs at the end of the uh, alleyway, and it turns out that she had stolen, she ripped had them stolen, off. She stolen, like, but she ripped them off. She's a drug like, dealer. Yeah. drug dealers, and she ripped them off. Of like several keys of... $15,000 worth of uh, merchandise for a concrete. Keys, as they like to say. So coke, then. They grab her. They attack her. They decide that she only has 15 bucks, so they're going to, I guess, hold her ransom until yeah, they can get their money. Yeah, take it out and trade. Trade, yeah. They definitely allude to that. Pitt shows up. 
covered in chains, starts kicking ass, throwing him around, grabs one guy by his hair. He does the whole superhero thing where he bends a street sign around them yeah, and hold them captive. At, at this point, Keon's artwork's just... I think he simplified a little bit. Yeah, it's 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 a downgrade. I was looking because I think the probably the best issue of the early issues of Pit was the one that Joseph Rubenstein inked. And I love Joe Rubenstein, but he's an assimilator. He's a guy who, when he inks somebody, he looks more like... Joe Rubenstein that it looks like the original artist which I think worked great over Frank Miller and Wolverine for instance but this is one of the rare instances where Rubenstein just inked Dale Keown and it still looked like Dale Keown but I think it looked even better than Keown normally would look mm-hmm. and he already looked great and I think that Steve Olaf did the covers on that issue and it, I, I think it was really just stunning I was looking at it again today and I thought it was incredible work where Keown had complained that he thought using inkers would help speed him up and that wasn't the case it just made the process that much longer and he liked the way his stuff looked when he inked it himself but also I think that he had the demand of trying to get that book out after he was sort of the poster child for late books everybody was slagging on him for the huge gaps between issues of Pit and so I do think he maybe may put in some shortcuts I think it still looks great mm. but there's still a lot of single and double page slashes and it's not quite as tight as when Rubenstein was inking him well, and there's only one issue I have to say too That's so it. if you like the other issues of Pit and I, we both did yeah. but Rubenstein only did that one issue but I, I do think that he elevated the game just a little bit she's the whole time questioning him you know saying should I thank you he's like you know, I'm assuming so. I just saved your life. She's like, "Are you one of these heroes?" He's like, "I'm no hero." He tells her to call the cops. She's like, yeah, nah. yeah. There's they got enough stuff to do, and it, it seems weird because he seems almost like he's trying to be an anti-hero, but he's a hero. Or am I reading that wrong? Yeah, he he's, he don't protest too much yeah. for a guy who acts so much like a hero. He's sure denying it hard. Yeah, and so as Pitt takes off, she morphs into. I'm assuming it's a werewolf. Yeah, it's a big purple werewolf thing. Yeah, which I, begs the question why. Why was she letting these guys rough her up? Because she was bloodied and, and beaten. Yeah. So why did she let that happen when Pitt was away? Did she need like a certain time, amount of time to psych herself into wolfing out or something? I thought she was a demon. She looked more demon than werewolf. It's definitely a, a not a typical werewolf. Yeah. Uh, so she, she's got weird proportions and she is purple, which is definitely different. Um, so she starts tearing into those guys that Pitt had just wrapped the post around. Pitt hears the screaming, runs back to the alleyway that he just left, finds their bloody corpses without their heads and at that moment she attacks him talking about I'll kill you I'll kill you I'll kill you she's clearly feral not completely rational remotely rational she bites down on his head and apparently he says wow she's almost gonna take my head off let me punch her in the ribs so she'll unlock her jaw he then punches her they're going at each other she's putting in some good licks on him but he's able to hold his own he then kind of gets frustrated he I guess slashes her with his claws mid chest she starts to bleed he then uh, does a what like a kill move, puts punches his fist a hole through her, her yeah, chest, and rips her. out her heart, kills her. She then morphs back into Frank's dream woman, and she's laying there naked on top of a box. At which point, Pitt's like, "Wow, she turned back into human." Oh shit! Well, I don't think that he knew that it was. She well, was it kind of threw him off. Yeah, because like that's who attacked me. As always in these books, that moment the uh, superheroes show up: Kite exactly. and Saurus. Is, is, is it Saurus? I'm name? just gonna call him Dino. So <laughs> Kite and Dino show up because you know. That's just what they do at that moment. They see Pitt and they're like, put your hands up. And then that's where the book ends. Two to four months later, the follow-up <laughs> issue comes out. Was it that long? It was a pretty good gap. If I recall correctly, it took nine and a half months to get the four issues out. God. That we're covering this time. So on the cover of this one, we have Dino beating up Pitt. I distinctly remember this cover because the first time I saw it, I thought it was a Hulk beating up the Pitt. And I was like, what? I, I think right, I, I had right. walked, I walked by it on, I believe it was probably your shelves. Was it your shelves? Not yet. Not yet. Not 
not yet. I just remember walking to shelves and I thought, is that the Hulk on the cover? Because I don't think I had, I had I mean, collect- probably the same shop. I just wasn't at that shop. Yet. Okay. I, I think I was collecting them, but I, I used to have this weird thing where I would collect like four or five books and then read them all together. Cause I really hated doing the book to book. I'd right. rather do chunks at a time. You, so I don't, you had an installment plan on trade waiting. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Dino and Kite catch Pitt with the dead body. They're telling him, you're coming with us, pal. And of course, Pitt's like, I'm no one's pal. And hurrah, hurrah. Great dialogue here. Banter, banter, banter. Pitt throws them off. Dino thinks he can take them. Sorian's all like, I am the strongest one there is. Yeah. So Dino starts going on a pit. They're fighting. Dino thinks he has them. Does a uppercut. Pitt goes flying into some garbage. Kites and radio into a home team. We got him. Mission accomplished. Dino goes to pick up the pit, pick up pit from the trash, walks up there. And what does he discover? A huge hole in the ground. How the fuck are you going to burrow into the New York subway and nobody fucking hears that shit? No, dude, we're talking through concrete. He cut exactly. through concrete. I'm saying, oh, oh, from, from the street. Oh, no, 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 into the subway system. No, no, this and is they the, don't even hear that happen. Well, no, 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 this is the great writing he because eats the fucking rubble. Well, no, this is the great writing of Del Keon and whoever that other guy Why is not? because right, right when Pitt reemerges, he's like, the surface of this planet is soft. It is so easy for me to dig. I'm like, come on, dude. We just saw that. You don't have to explain just anything else, man. I guess teleporting would have been too much. How is he punching not a hole? Noise? How does he silently do this? It's so so stupid. Uh, yeah, it's thought that was really. He doesn't have running. a laser to cut through like Nick Fury and Winter Soldier, you know. And I, I don't know. He ran away. Why, like why? I, I just, it, it made no leave. sense. Yeah, it made no sense. Why go down when you could go up? It, uh. And then Officer, what's her name again? I keep forgetting her name. Bobby Chase, aka uh, Rykee. Okay, Bobby. Bobby Hill is uh, Sorry, Bobby Harris. Bobby, Bobby Harris. Because Bobby Chase is the editor. Bobby Harris is the character. Her and uh, Blade show up to the hospital to see Timmy. He says the name. Look where, look at her dialogue and see where she says the dude's name. Who, Timmy's real name or? No, Timmy Bracken is the, his real name. No, her partner. John Shiro. Okay, good. I was just checking. But I'm just going to call him Blake because he's Blake. That's fine, that's fine. I just want to confirm I have okay. the right name though. So Timmy's there. Grandpa's there. They're about to go check on him. All of a sudden they hear it sounds like an earthquake. Grandpa gets two to the arm. He's knocked out. Darts. Darts. Knockout darts. Oh, uh, sure. Grandpa was in La La Land. He was, he's feeling good. Apparently these special ops guys are there to kidnap Timmy. Rolling masks or paramilitaristic. Yeah, kind of like Cobra Commanders. Cobra Squad. They kidnap Timmy. They get another thing. And, and they've got a, a hovercraft, too. They've got a, like a hovercraft well, that they're uh, able to collect him in. Yeah. Quinjet or whatever. Just it has there. vertical takeoff and landing. Quinjet. Anyway, so Bobby Harris goes running, jumps, leaps for it. She goes, I can survive the fall. You can't, Blade. So Blade stays behind. She's on there. You know, Blade screams, Bobby. Well, maybe she can survive the fall. Maybe she can hang on. They don't know yet. What? But so I, far, so good. I'm assuming she's She-Hulk she level strength. Yeah, yeah. She-Hulky. So not quite I, that level because she did so poorly against Pitt, but ballpark, yeah. Well, dude, She-Hulk never really held her own against Hulk. Come on. She's not okay. Better than Bobby did against Pitt. Yeah. Well, anyway, all of a sudden, Pitt shows up on the... Uh, he had dug his way away from Dino and the kite and shows up. They were so formidable he had to fucking yeah. run and hide from them. And Because the earth is so soft. He was able to dig his way to the hospital. He jumps on the building. He sees the ship flying off and screams, no. Come Yeah. <laughs> Timmy! Timmy! And Pitt leaps behind them and misses the ship, lands in the hospital. Blade's in there. Blade is radioing the home base that Timmy has been kidnapped with his grandfather. Pitt then grabs the blade, hangs him over the window, starts demanding to know where Timmy's at. At this point, Dino and Kite are flying. I'm not... Oh, yeah, that's right. Kite can fly, right? Yeah, that's the whole thing. He's Kite. He flies. Yeah, the whole time I thought Dino had jumped and Kite was holding on. Okay, that makes more sense now. Because they do this whole joke about 
waving his arms and is throwing him off. I didn't I didn't get the joke at the time. I, mean, I guess he has some sort of either superhuman strength or gravity effect or something because he's able to carry this gigantic Hulk looking Yes, dude. massive person. And they see Pit. Kite then throws Dino the old, uh, was it a softball or was it Wolverine? Oh, the fastball special. Fastball special. special. He goes flying into Pit. Dino starts punching Pit. And Pit basically lays down along. He's like, I ain't got time for this shit and just beats the fuck out of him. I mean, beats him like a... Beats him the way Hulk would have beaten up Achilles or it, was it Achilles the big dumb one? In what? In the Pantheon from the Del Kion, Peter David Hulk run. Oh, man, it's been so long since I've read that. I know, right? But anyway, you always knew that that guy could never hold his own against the Hulk yeah. and we're establishing that Saurian, Sauron, whatever the fuck the dude's name Dino. is, is not competing with Pitt either. Yeah, so Pitt in all his chains and glory beats the shit out of Dino screaming, where is Timmy? Blade says, well, our ride's here, let's go. They all, uh, uh, suddenly, they're all friends now. They go run into their own Quinjet. Well, they both have people that they've lost that they're True. trying to save. So. And, and Pitt just wants to get to Timmy. Timmy! And, and uh, they want to get to Bobby, Bobby Hill. And so as they're getting on the ship, they're flying after him. They're saying, good thing, Bobby's with them because we can track her through, I guess she has a tracker on her somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and Pitt's like, I don't need that. I can sense my boy, Timmy. Yeah. And so as they're flying behind, they radio into a doctor in a hospital saying, we have the boy. He's like, are you being followed? No, we're, we're pretty sure. He's like, well, just make sure you're not being followed. Oh, Makes- and also they'd ready to go into the professor guy that's, I guess, their Professor X slash the chief from Doom Patrol. Yeah, he's the one that kidnapped it. Is he? Spoilers. Oh, my, um, bad. my bad. But yeah, so he's the one who's telling them, you know, they're heading north into, like, Canada, and he's like, you're out of your jurisdiction, and they're like, hey, fuck you, buddy, we're gonna go save our partner over here. Which leads us into Pit 7 in the Arctic. Some, es- some Eskimos. Eskimos. About to kill them. Kind of badly drawn Eskimos, too. They don't yeah. they, they don't have that Delkion seal of approval. I don't know, man. Even his bear is looking a little weak. I, I think that that was maybe a guest stinker or just a rush job. Definitely you know, rush. Polar bears in a snowstorm is definitely a time saver. Yeah. So they all get off Pit in all his chains and glory and, and now apparently wearing a leathered vest get out of, of the Quinjet and I did like that. You know, it, it comes and goes, right? Yeah. The vest. He was bare chested in the I last think issue. I think so. Well, sure. it's cold. What, what, so I guess he needs let's be honest. It's not, little... it's not so much a vest as maybe a piece of cloth thrown over his shoulders. Let's put it this way. It was probably a jacket on a very large man. On him is this little tiny Chippendale vest Yeah, that is pretty ridiculous looking. And apparently he found jeans in his own size. Now, I did like the fact that Dino's struggling with the code because it's cold-blooded. He's a reptile and yeah. basically they tell him he won't survive in this climate. Because he he's like, go back my head hurt. Head hurt. I won't find Bobby, but head hurt. And they're like, well, get, in the boat. Like, get back into the Quinjet, you asshole. Yeah. You're dying. Are you, what was they tell him you'll last 15 minutes in this cold? Yeah. So he gets back in, which I thought that was kind of cool. At least he can't temperature regulate. Yeah, yeah that was kind of neat. So Pitt's like, um, I know where he's at. I feel my boy Timmy. And he points at a glacier and they're like, are you sure that's a, just a glacier? And Pitt's like, it's there. And he does the it's Hulk. ice fortress, I think he calls it, right? He does, yeah, I believe so. He calls it an ice fortress. He does the Hulk's jump. It's really unfortunate that he does the whole leaping thing. Giant yeah. dude to leap is, is really cornered by the Hulk. Yeah. We discussed this last time, but it bears repeating. He starts punching his way through. He falls off the side of it, falls into the water. Well, yeah, because the ice breaks off of the interior fortress, you know, like anybody would have expected. And he, there's nothing to hold on to when he does that. He creates his own avalanche, essentially. True. We find Bobby inside the ice fortress. She's Along with Jack around. Smithers, the cop partner of Bobby Harris, which doesn't 
doesn't make a lot of sense, and they got a no prize a little later yeah. on. They felt like they needed to have some sort of personal stake and give her a reason to, to be there, I guess. Well, no, I guess a reason. Into well, it. true. Though I, I, I thought it was kind of it was kind of strange they put Timmy in a glass. Well, he's in suspended animation. Is he? And okay. they explain that later on. Why? Oh, do they? Because I, I, I totally missed that then. Bobby's walking in there trying to figure out how to get her partner and Timmy out. She gets attacked from behind. They said, oh, she's still up. So they take a couple more swipes at her. At this point, Pitt, because he fell off the side, has found a way to barrel. He's big into digging. He's got them claws. Yeah, so he digs his way up from underneath the ice fortress into the fortress. Which one is, which animal is the one that digs all the time? A mole? Yeah, he's kind of got mole power. Maybe a badger? Well, you know, Hulk does a lot of digging too when you think about it. He's done his fair share of digging. Hulk's dug his way through some <sighs> shit. Didn't they have him digging his way out of the uh, mountain in Secret Wars? Or did he just hold it up? I think he was holding it up. That's right. Yeah. But he, I think he's done some digging though. He's done some burrowing on occasion. Yeah, but it's not his thing. It's not really, it's yeah, way yeah. more Pitt's thing. Yeah, yeah. Like Pitt's already done like twice in just two fucking issues. So he's, he's, he's done through a subway. He's done through ice. Yeah. Okay. He has a thing for digging through ice. That's um, why he doesn't have the nose because he doesn't have a filter. I guess so. Filter. That's yeah. true. And it turns out that uh, the ice fortress is actually full of a bunch of Creed. Yep. The aliens that he is descended from and who created him. And so they look like him in terms of their facial features. No nose. Not as big. No claws. Yeah, no claws. So that's so he's a mixture well, of. One thing that does kind of separate him though is they retain their Caucasian skin tone. Yeah. Where Penn get, Pitt gets increasingly pale as the series goes on. Does it? Because he seems to change colors quite a he bit. He does. They're not consistent. Yeah. They're not, just like his size. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Even his size. But by so the time he gets to the Claiborne War statue, he is fucking porcelain white. Isn't really? Because Pitt. So I guess Pitt is what half Creed, half human, and half whatever. Well, vo- they have not said of whether he's humanoid. Yeah, or they not. do. They have said that he's yeah, got. They said DNA. you're human. Okay. So yeah, they kind of mentioned his human bit. weakness okay. or some shit like that. I remember thinking, okay, so like he has human DNA, and I guess well, that's... I think they're referring to the emotional weakness that he's gained from developing a conscious under uh, his time with Jerob. Okay, I thought maybe they just meant he obviously has some... physically he kicks the fucking shit out of Creed. Yeah. Oh no. Well, they start beating on him because there's like what one, two, three, four, five, maybe six of them, and they start wailing on him, and then he goes full. Pit. He goes full Captain America. That's a, such a calf thing to have a whole army of people like surround you and start beating on you, and then you just burst free and kick everybody's ass. Well, he goes full pit. They're shooting at him. Well, they were very aggressive, and uh, rather than the stronger I get, the matter I get, the stronger I get. His thing is the more aggressive you are, the more aggressive I become, or something. Yeah. He like feeds off their aggression really? and uses it against them. That's the thing they recite a few times. Yeah. Well, he you know whips out. It's his- unclear how that works, but that's my understanding. Is he he locks locks on to an attacker's aggression and it powers him in some way, and he rechannel redirects that aggression back at them. So you mad make me more mad stronger. Very similar. Yes. Okay. It's a different way of getting to the same result. So he whips out his digging claws and starts to tear into people and use his digging claws and he burrows through some chest cavities. Yeah, he's covered in green blood everywhere with and everyone green, everyone having holes in him. He bleeds purple, him. right? Huh? He bleeds purple. right? I believe so. Yeah, the yeah. last issue was purple. They they bleed green. At which point, Grandpa, who seems very cool about all this, is like, "Huh? Thought I heard something going on out there." And we find out that Grandpa's been awakened by Pitt, as he puts it, "the sound of flesh being ripped." Which I don't know what that sounds like. That's yeah, maybe he, he must have been in the war. Yeah, I was like, I was like, whoa, that's uh, that's some dark shit there. Maybe Tim Bracken had some hobbies. I know, know man. About. You know, Grandpa's like back in Tagon in '59 or '69. Maybe anyway. he, maybe his original name was Gein. He kind of changed it up. I don't get it. Ed Gein. Oh, Ed Gein. Uh, I don't know. It's just weird that he was awakened by the sound of flesh. Well, Pitt. and also Pitt had happened to pick up his glass at the hospital and was able to present those. Oh yeah, him. that's right. Yeah, that that was kind of strange. But he's such an anti-hero. He's such a badass. Oh, 
look where well, those glasses. I, I, I have one question. Where did he put those glasses? I know, right? Let's be honest. Pitt don't have a lot of pockets. You wanna he wash, got a lot of chains. They want to wash those first. He got a lot of chains, but he got a lot of pockets. And so at which point they're walking, Pitt rips off the door. Grandpa tells Pitt, I'm still mad at you. I'm surprised he's not freaked the fuck out because you got this like 10 foot, or about 10 feet? He's up there. Yeah. Creature walking. Hands him his glasses. At this point, the creed. Like William Shatner, he could make love to the mountain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he wants to make love to the mountain. To the mountain. He wants to make love to the mountain. Okay, so this character that's introduced at the end that's going to be Pitt's punching bag. Roth, right? I guess. So Roth is the black brother of Pitt who has no hair on his body. I don't know that you need to elaborate upon that. He's more Zoivod's son. He's loyal to the cause, but he's basically black Pitt. He's his soul brother. And that leads us to Pitt 8. That should be our last one, right? Uh, with some a few uh, tacked-on additions, yeah. So Pitt 8, we're introduced to Pitt's half-brother. Pitt hands Grandpa the glasses and tells him, Oh, look, here's your glasses. And Grandpa's bitching about them being scratched. He looks up and it's Timmy, frozen in ice. Now, why again did they suspend him? There is coming up. Well, so they're walking. The soldiers then take Grandpa hostage. Important to note that these are human soldiers. Human soldiers, yes. These are the same guys that got Timmy out of the hospital in the first place. They take Grandpa's uh, hostage. Pitt tells him to release. They swear to God they're going to execute him. You can't be that stupid, Pitt lets them know. Grandpa's also like, kill me. I don't care. Just get these guys. Yeah. Save Timmy. Now that's the part I was confused because does Pitt jump through the through the ceiling? No, he gets slapped through the ceiling by Roth. Okay, he's getting ready to tear up on the soldiers, then Roth comes in and smacks okay, him that fucking artwork threw me off because I'm like, wait, what? What just happened? Because all of a sudden Pitt's like buried in snow with his feet hanging out, and I'm like, what the fuck just happened? And he's at the top where the Quinjet and all that shit was at the top of the mm. uh, of the glacier where Axiom Enterprises is just yeah. been chilling. And all of a sudden, what's his brother's name again? Roth. Roth. Really? This is Roth. Roth is his name. I think it's W-R-O-T-H. So we're just, I have no idea what we'd call this guy. Hairless Pit. So the Hairless Pit is now telling him, you know, our father sends his warmest regards. Pit in his chains of glory, which the art is now starting to pick up a little bit. They start going at it. Punchy, punchy, kicky, kicky, more punchy, punchy. This time a lot of scratchy, scratchy. Mm-hmm. Well, they both, both have claws. claws. So there's a lot of scratchy, scratchy, punchy, punchy, kicky. Kite shows up. At this point, what's her name again? Rocky? Bobby. Bobby's being transported by two Cree soldiers. Um, and she's kind of thinking her way of how she's going to get away. She grabs the pole and does a stripper swing kick type move. Sure, sure. I wouldn't throw in the stripper part. <laughs> I think that we've seen guys do that, so I think it's a little gendered. Oh, yeah, okay, a little gendered. Anyway, she kicks one guy. He goes over the edge, screaming to his death, and they make sure to draw that there's, I guess, spikes or something at the bottom? Right. So we know he's dead. She grabs a gun, shoots the other one through the chest. Pitt and Hairless Pitt are still turning at each other, and then Kite shows up and is like, I'm will help out shoots hairless pit in the back hairless pit pretty much laughs off his blast because i guess it's nothing to him and kite takes a little offense and says well if i turns up to 11 and blast am i to take that he hit him or he just blowing up the shit in front of him because i thought i thought he basically just shot everything in front of him there's an enough explosion to knock him off his feet beyond that i couldn't say yeah timmy and uh the guy from bobby's past are there jack smithers jack smithers Cobra her, her uh, partner in the hp or not HPD, sorry, <laughs> wrong city, NYPD. Cobra Commander and his squad are sitting there holding Grandpa. Okay, so y'all have to explain this because I read it, but it doesn't make sense to me. Okay, I'll, I'll give you the short version. I just need to get the guy's name because I don't have my notes with me. So, okay, we just got introduced to Axiom Enterprise. Yeah. Their chief character is Professor Holdsworth. And this guy was introduced three issues earlier as the team leader, I guess. And 
uh, it turns out he's betraying the team to have Timmy get kidnapped and using Axiom as a distraction against Pitt. But we didn't even get the dude's name in his first appearance. We don't know this guy. He's not well established. So his betraying the team, it doesn't really make sense because A, how is he betraying the team? The team had nothing to do with Pitt and Timmy for the most part aside from uh, Ryan Key slash Bobby. So there's no reason why they would have any skin in this game aside from they get sent to distract Pitt. So really the problem is that Bobby jumps onto the ship when if she'd left shit alone, Axiom would have just gotten this job. But apparently Axiom is being employed by the Creed to capture Timmy and put him in suspended animation so that Smithers, who has had a chip placed on him since he was attacked by the Creed in the subway system in issues one and two, they put the chip in there because it allows him to not only track him, but also it's going to allow Zoivod to manifest within his body. Okay, I get that part. Previously. And so Zoivod is supposed to kill Timmy slash Jerob while he's just in an animation and can't fight him off to, to end the threat that Jerob represents to Zoivod and the Creed. Okay. Uh, it, it's obviously a ham-fisted way of getting Jack Smithers back into the book after they probably forgot about him for a few issues. Bobby then shows up, sees who's betrayed who. So then that was the guy in the wheelchair? Yeah. Oh, okay, so it was all... Okay, wow. Yeah, they did not establish that well at No, all. they did not. I was confused. So Bobby starts shooting... Like, I... Because again, this is my second reading of Pitt in the last year since this is among the issues that I'm got so me gotten me covering it. I'm and so, so it wasn't until the second time I read it that I realized that he was the Professor X of Axiom. Okay, because I thought that was a totally different character. Wow. Okay. Um. So Bobby shooting, shooting, killing, killing. Pitt and Hairless Pitt are still fighting outside, knocking each other around. Kite knocked him away. Pitt and Hairless Pitt are going at it. Uh, Kite's trying to help the best he can. There. So it's basically Pitt and Kite taking on Hairless Pitt. Mm-hmm. Roth. R- Think of David Lee. Raw. Eh, just hairless pit. It works for me. Um, or teamwork. Be black pit. Huh? Black pit works too. He is black. Nah, man, nah. <laughs> Not gonna go there. Nah. We'll just go hairless. Because he is hairless. He has no hair whatsoever on his whole body. Does Timmy then release the alien that's inside of him? Right. Even though he's in suspended animation, out of nowhere, Timmy's able to access Jerob or vice versa. Yeah. Jerob fires this energy blast that randomly shoots Pit into outer space and also hits the Creed spaceship and destroys all the Creed that were in the ship that was hovering Earth, which doesn't address the Creed that were actually in the base. So did Bobby kill all the Creed that were in the base? Between I, Pitt and Bobby, they killed all the Creed that I'm were assume, terrestrial? Now that you explained this to me, I didn't know that was Jerob that shot him into space. I thought right. he just, I thought it was just a blazer blast from the ship and he just got caught in it. No. Wow. So for the second story arc in a row, Pitt gets into fights with people. He destroys pretty much everybody in his path until he gets to a big bad. He fights the big bad to a standstill and then Timmy Jerob shows up and shoots everybody and that's the end of the story. Dino, Blade, go and they pick up Bobby, Timmy, her friend, and Grandpa. They get on the ship. They then f- apparently this Quinjet can fly into space because they go and they pick up Pitt, who's just floating in space at this point. Yeah. So apparently doesn't need oxygen. Why did they even send him to space in the first place? I am. I- dude, this makes like no fucking sense. I, I, it almost feels like... By the way, just as a spoiler, the next story arc also ends with Pitt floating in space. So it's like get it right the first fucking time, Dude, guys. that's so fucking weird. They keep re- repeating these motifs. And then, of course, the little Cherub kid shows up and E.T. phone homes Pitt and then something about the truth and then Pitt. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happens here, I think, yeah, is that Jerob finally can manifest into an energy form outside of Timmy. And so he escapes Timmy's body and Jerob was going to go someplace to do something that isn't elaborated upon. But because Pitt was helping him all this time, he decides to give Pitt the gift of the truth. So I, I'm actually speaking out of turn. I guess in the next arc, there's a flashback to the truth. Okay. that is revealed to Pitt. That must be what happened. Okay, so sorry. It's just the writing is so shitty that it was fucking with my ability to convey what had happened and understand what had happened. Pitt's now, without a shirt, just 
just chains and pants. And they're like, so what are you going to do now? You're going to hang out here? And he's like, nope, I'm, I'm taking off. But don't worry, I won't be far. And at which point, Timmy's growing his hair back and he's eating cereal. Grandpa seems happy. Timmy says, it feels like I didn't eat anything for at least two years. Which I think is a tongue-in-cheek joke about the slow production schedule. Oh, okay. I was wondering. I was wondering because I remember reading I was like, wait, was there a time jump that I didn't understand? It? Like, I really did he think. He that much here. Well, no, when I read the book and I read that page, I was thinking, was there a time jump? Or did I miss something? Or did I skip a page? Because I thought maybe there was like this huge like year that Timmy was missing. So, okay. And that was the uh, number eight of Pit. The penultimate issue published by Image, by the way. They got one more issue and then they're going to jump over to Full Bleed. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. And Full Bleed was his own his own company, right? His own right? company, yeah. Under the Image flag or what? Yeah, see, they, they brought Dale Keown in because he was one of the hot artists. And Image wanted to get as many of the hot artists at their company as possible. But they also needed artists they could produce on a regular schedule. So they brought in all these other like older veteran guys that could be relied upon and then either the books didn't sell as well as they'd hoped or those guys also had production delays a lot of these guys when you read interviews with them they talk about how they didn't know how the business was going to work and how they published through image but image gives them no upfront money and then the checks don't come in for almost a year after the books are coming out so you're you're basically impoverished until the money starts coming in and so they had production delays they had money delays and there it was more than just artists being lazy which is what they always did the line that Marvel and DC helped promote is that these artists they get a little bit of money in their pocket and they become millionaires with one issue and then they don't want to do the work anymore and while I think that happened in individual cases uh, a lot of it was just that it's hard to set up your own essentially image isn't image is an umbrella for small publishers but every single house is its own publisher within yeah. image yeah, and, they're, and, they're, and they're basically responsible for all their own shit and if you don't have the resources and the knowledge to know how to get to printers and, and who, how to pay people and how to traffic manage it's going to eat up a lot of your time and at that point in time, Dale Keown, you know, he's wanting to make some money. So you see ads in the comics for skateboards and watches and posters. And you got to cut those deals with people. And it, it's a huge time suck. And it has a major impact. For whatever reason, Image was unhappy with the artists that they brought in. And most of the guys got their books canceled. Dale Keown was one of the few that were spared, probably because he was an upper yeah. tier artist and a, and a name. Who, was, who were some artists and that got we'll, cut? We'll get into that in later episodes. Okay. We'll, we'll talk about those guys. But there are a lot of these guys got the chop. And Dale Keown was one of the ones who did not, but I'm sure they also stressed that you need to get the book out in a more timely fashion, and he could not. And at some point, he either got tired of shit, or maybe they did finally let him go. I don't know. I'm, we'll we'll re- research that later on. I've already got enough Dale Keown stuff to discuss without going into the future. But eventually, Dale Kid started his own company, Full Bleed Studios, and they produced nine through the rest of the, the run of Pit. Well, there was a second series as well. Pit Crew, yes. Yeah. That was an anthology title. Let me get the, the hardcore education on you now. Uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to go ahead and do another Pit episode besides that it ended in sort of an unsatisfactory fashion in the first four issues was because I wanted to get some of this information out there. So you were asking me about the writer Brian Houghton, who is only yes. a scripter. Uh, Del Keown is the actual writer. Brian Houghton is only the scripter. So Brian Houghton was born in 1958, which makes him 35 at the time of Pitt and 61 years old today. He was born in Toronto, Ontario, and he was a touring guitarist for rock bands. He was encouraged to write by his bandmate Del Keown in 1985, and he contributed scripting to Del Keown's Dragon Force book. He was working on a Rye Key spinoff because uh, like all the other image studios Axiom comes in that fifth issue because they're looking at trying to expand the line obviously that didn't really work out and ultimately I think that his plans for Rye Key slash Bobby Chet Harris ended up in an issue of Pit Crew the anthology book and that's about it. it launched the book essentially and Brian Houghton for the most part didn't do anything else but he did do one thing with Pit that I need you to read so one moment on that before we get started though the, here is a picture of Brian Houghton playing his guitar 
And they kept referring to Pit Crew, spelled C-R-U-E, like Molly Crew, as the group of people that were making Pit comic books and hung out together. Apparently, they had like a hockey team or a fishing team or something. Also, they put together a band. And eventually, you actually had a CD produced by Pit Crew, spelled C-R-E-W, like the book was. And Brian Houghton wrote lyrics for that band and played guitar with the band. And you can actually see in this comic book or in this promotional book, uh, Inside Image, where there's the lyrics to In the Crawl Space, a song about Jerob speaking from within Pit, you know, when they were cohabitating together in the same body. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you just read a backup story from Pit number five. It was part of what appeared to be intended to be a regular feature called The Outer World, but it ended up being just this one story uh, called By Trial by Fire. What happens in it? God-awfulness. Just god-awfulness. Plot-wise. God-awfulness. <laughs> I'm assuming Cadillacs and dinosaurs? Because it seemed that way. It's a world that's been overwhelmed by dinosaurs. Why well, would say dinosaurs? They're still, more like mutated monsters. They were like some saurian creatures, but they're mostly dinosaurish. And um, it's like Jurassic World, essentially. The kids are running around still dressing like it's the 80s or 90s, but apparently yeah. it's been at least 60 years since it's been going on. And there's snipers in the trees that are shooting the dinosaurs, but they're also apparently like crazy rednecks that also take shots of the kids. And what they're else They're called happens? pennies? Yeah, for some reason they're called pennies. Yeah, and they're shooting at the kids, and then the kids try to get into a car, and one of the pennies... Like, one of the pennies is being eaten and they're like listen to his bone crunch they, they, they're they like the other kid tells uh, well, one of the kids tries to start the car and the other kid's like dude this car is not going to start it hasn't moved in like 60 years so they take out the fuel and start like well they, they take out the battery and they're unscrewing the battery caps to, to spill battery acid around but is battery acid flammable I don't know I assume so I think this is, so this is a Matt question that's definitely that's a definitely Matt a Matt question. question I believe that battery acid is flammable yeah okay sure so then they light they light they encircle themselves and they light it and the monster dinosaur things are kind of scared and they're looking away. Yeah, they're hanging out around the fire. So that sort of defeats the purpose. If they're scared of it, why would they hover around the fire? At which point I'm assuming it died down and they're going back to their shelter. Yeah, eventually the dinosaurs did leave them alone and then the fire dies down. But then uh, I guess a smaller dinosaur... Like a raptor. ...jumps out and bites one of the kid's arms off and says, that's a nice snack. So I'm assuming they can talk? This one you could. Yeah, so that was just fucking horrible. Well, it's left field that he would just show up, talk, and eat the kid's left arm. It, 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 There's no it, setup. That's not established. There's yeah. no setup. There's nothing going on. I mean... Well, I think maybe they would have gone into more detail if they'd done more, but they didn't do more. Well, so. artwork... Yeah, they were never going to make more. This I like was, the artwork okay. Dude, it was horrible. Ah, it was fine. Horrible it, 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 it wasn't that bad. It was fine. The artwork horrible I thought was artwork. pretty solid. Um, it was drawn by Goran Delic, who didn't have a lot of credits. He mostly did, like, anthology books. And see, there was another one in the third issue by a fellow's name is James J. Somerville. Uh, it was part of a, a, it was called Crash of Souls. And it was about a human warrior on an alien world who's got a, a, a human army with him. And they're fighting some Saurian uh, villains, some alien guys. And he keeps seeing images of the the love of his life, this pale woman. He keeps seeing her face. Uh, and he finally gets to the castle where he's going to liberate his love. And then the Saurian commander comes up and you see that he's got the decapitated head of the lover, which was a nice theme because every, scene, every shot you'd seen of her previous in the story was just her face and now at the end you never get to see her body because it's no longer attached to her and so the saurian dude lifts up the head and the, the humanoid commander is like no you betray her how dare you and he throws the head over the wall and the guy like drops everything to catch the head to confirm that she's actually dead and because he's whacked out of his mind for over eluding his, his lover and he gets shot repeatedly in the face and body by the saurian dudes and uh he dies and that's the end of the story i like the art on it i thought it looked pretty good but it was similar to this artwork so if you hated this artwork you would like that either. somerville had done a bunch of of anthology books like the Warren series 1984 
which was their sci-fi anthology. He had done Echoes of Future Past, which was Continuity Studios anthology. And I'm not sure if this story was part of some series of, of short stories from those books or not. The guy doesn't have a ton of credits. Besides this, he'd done some Dark Horse licensed books like Aliens, Predator, The Thing, and um, just some odds and sods. But uh, that ended up being an ongoing series either. It was uh, called, I think, Clash of Souls. And they just had these two backup stories in Pit, I guess, for out value added filler. or space filler or something. It's just filler. And they never progressed from there. They should never have. Okay. So getting that out of the way, let's talk a little bit about Dale Keon. A boot? A boot? Yeah. So Dale Keon's first major interview was in January 1992's Amazing Heroes number 198, one of the magazine's final issues. Interviewer Lynn Wong noted that Todd McFarlane had stated that he considered Keon to be one of the best working artists of the day and that Keon had become a fan favorite without the help of Marvel's marketing muscle, which favored the X-Titles and other easier sells. Keon is Canadian and grew up in a town of 20,000 people. When he was 14 in 1946, he was the biggest Hulk fan. He knew what day and time the comics delivery would arrive at his small local convenience store and was so enthusiastic for his Hulk comics that they let him unpack and sort the shipments for them. His family went to a farm every weekend without TV or indoor plumbing, just a battery-operated AM radio. So Keon wouldn't do... So Keon wouldn't go anywhere without his box of Sal Buscema and Joe Staten issues of Hulk. Learning to draw by using... <clears throat> he learned to draw by doing large-scale, wall-sized recreations of panels from those books. His favorite was one from around 1975 with a thing battle. Keon told a... F- <clears throat> Keon told a... F- I can't say it. Keon told a funny story about how Barry Blair co-owned an insulation company in Ottawa whose primary material was banned in 84 or 85. Blair could draw and suggested starting a comic book company without bothering with the expense of changing the name from Aircell. Meanwhile, Keon was touring with a glam metal band called Sad, Spandex and glitter liner, you know, the whole works, uh, doing covers of everything from George Thorogood to Black Sabbath. He was also with a band called Elvin Screamer that won a battle of the bands that scored the money for a music video that went up the lead singer's nose. And uh, they did get some quality studio time, though. So Keon toured for five years, and rather than party, he would spend his free time drawing. Uh, Ottawa didn't have much of a music scene, and what it had favored techno fluff stuff. So Keon quit, cut his hair, got a job as a butcher's assistant, and was trying to transition to work at a grocery store with his meat-cutting skills. Then a news report came on about a comic company starting up locally, and bing, as he put it. So, did you ever read any of Barry Blair's stuff, by the way? No. He's the guy who did those really, like, barely pubescent elven guys. You know, they're always really skinny, and they have... Oh, I think I've seen them, yeah. He did did some porn, too, like Leather and Lace. ElfQuest or something like that, or...? Not ElfQuest, that was Wendy Penny, but similar kind of stuff, yeah. Um, So, Blair's partner tried to get Keown to the... Blair's partner tried to give Keown the runaround on the phone, so Keown went straight to their offices with fantastic... Four samples. Uh, John Burns Run had gotten him back into comics, and he was all hired on the spot to do a book called Samurai. Barry Blair was big into martial arts, and his style was much different from the Burn Rights and hybrid Keon was doing at the time. So he got a lot of hate mail on the book. Uh, Keon didn't know anything about Japan and was basically doing a gory Conan thing, so they moved him to their team book instead. The fantasy series Dragon Ring became the superhero team Dragon Force, initially in color with expensive laser separations. Keon was doing all the art plus the colors. That went well, but they decided to increase output of the company and return to cheaper black and white so the art and sales both suffered. Keon was still working on Dragon Force but he thought it looked like crap because he wasn't getting to do this, his own inks. Joe Rubenstein saw his work and asked Barry Blair to eventually pass along his number but it took a while so apparently Blair didn't want Rubenstein making contact. Rubenstein asked Dale Keon to pitch for an official handbook of the Marvel Universe. I think he did a uh, Rick Jones uh, profile page but editor Greg Wright thought <clears throat> but editor Greg Wright thought his work was too girly like Wendy Penny and passed. Keon used his small in at Marvel to pitch for 
for work there and at DC. Bobby Chase, the editor, got him his first work at Marvel, and then Bob Harris came through with a Hulk gig. Word was Jeff Purvis wasn't happy because he wanted to draw castles, and there weren't enough castles in Hulk comics. Have you ever heard that story? No, I never heard that story. So, Keown didn't have much say on Hulk, aside from the odd wardrobe change, but enjoyed working on the book. He was disappointed when David rejected requests for Wolverine and Thing battles, as there'd already already been a as there'd already been a bunch of those in the books at that point. However, David also didn't dictate panels, giving X pages of plot and letting Keon paste them how he wished. He also liked the whole universe thing, like Infinity Gauntlet crossovers and Hulk guest appearing in other books, which may help to explain why Pitt made early and frequent guest appearances in other image titles. Keon noted that the <clears throat> Keon noted that he tended to work from the early afternoon until the early morning and unwound when the artistic juices weren't flowing by playing bass in his home studio. He had a cordial relationship with Inker Mark Farmer, but wanted to do more of his own inking, as well as work with stars like Scott Williams and Art Bear. Uh, he also listened to a lot of hard rock, especially Metallica and Deep Purple. Besides the obvious John Byrne and Bernie Wrightson influences, Keown also claimed Sal and John Buscema, Joe Staten, and more recently, Jim Lee, Wills Portacio, Alan Davis, and Larry Stroman. So, the January 1994 issue of Thrasher magazine, do you remember that? I remember Thrasher, yes, I do. Uh, he had a two-page spread. There was an interview with um, Keown and Brian Houghton related to a new line of decks that Santa Cruz was putting out and you, you may remember there were ads for those skateboards in the big so. comics. Yeah. It featured now 30-year-old Toronto rocker Keown with his writing partner. Uh, whoever wrote the article knew nothing about comics because it was full of obvious mistranslations of what Keown said. He'd met Todd McFarlane at Marvel and was later approached by him about doing a pinup for Spawn that could maybe spawn an image book of its own. Afterward, Rob Liefeld told him that he needed to get over to Image Pronto and get started on a book if he wanted to the true creative freedom that Image offered. So he finally bolted from Marvel. Pitt was derived from the Nick name of a biker friend of his and Hotton's who kind of resembled the character Keon had drawn plus he'd always thought it was a great would be a great name for a band and what I hear too is that he was actually their manager uh, in one of the bands like maybe Sad I think that that came up with, in an interview with Paul Robb for Wizard Magazine number 16 um Let's see. I want to crack that open for a minute. So Keon continued in the Wizard interview. The only person from Image that I had met before was Todd McFarlane. I remember at Christmas, he and I sat around and talked. He told me a lot of Marvel stories. He had met a lot more people and hinted that if all of these artists ever started their own imprint, it would be great. I didn't know he was serious at the time. I really can do my own work. I can ink my own work and it's with Image that I can accomplish that. The big reason why I joined Image is creative control, making your own choices. You can choose whoever you want, the penciler and the colorist. He made a point of noting that Pitt was not an acronym despite the period in that one pinup piece. Okay. He talks about a pit skin to color and how he tried to disguise himself with goggles and a helmet. He's sort of a dirty flesh tone color. I couldn't make him green for obvious reasons. And besides, Eric Larson's already got a character that's green. Eric and I, we think alike. We both like these monster-leading men. They're misunderstood monsters, which is what I liked about the Hulk, especially John Byrne's run in 1985. Wizard asked him, how do you get along with your image partners? Keon said, in Chicago, I noticed we're all alike. We all sort of like to draw. There's a competitive nature, not so much about deadline, because we're concerned about the quality of our characters, but we do send a lot of faxes to each other. Ideas, art, mock-up covers, dialogue, to see who can come up with the coolest characters. He says that Jim Lee was the best at that. He also mentions that he didn't have a name for the Chakra Boy. That's the name of the alien race. The Chakra Boy that was living in Pitt's head and decided mid-interview on Garab. You know, like the wizard publisher's name? Do you think he'll mind? Jerub, Garab. That's oh, where he comes okay. from. He was borrowing Garab Seamus' name from Wizard Magazine. Keon says, Brian and I met each other in a band called Sad. He was a guitarist and had written a science fiction screenplay. 
We got along and I asked him to be my partner and we've been partners since 1985. I think people will be surprised that I can write and tell some good stories, but you've got to please yourself from a writer's point of view. And when they asked him if it'd be anything like Marvel's books, he said, no, it's not the typical Marvel fight on every page with all the violence. <laughs> I learned structure from Peter David and about foreshadowing. The bounty hunters will be the subplot with Pitt on a Harley being chased down the highway. Poor Timmy. From an Earth point of view, he's an orphan and he's confused himself. So that didn't plan out quite the way that he planned. No. Which is pretty much par for the course when you read these image interviews. The guys had one thing in mind, but you need writers and you need editors. And I get it. We just talked about how there was money issues. These guys are just starting up their companies. They figure that they know more about telling stories than the comic book writers and they don't have the money to hire writers anyway. They obviously don't want to deal with any editors. They all had problems with editors. And so they all thought that their buddies who could write for them could carry them. They couldn't. And the same thing. I think that Brian Houghton is actually decent at dialogue, but they needed an editor to help them to understand pacing and, and to get the information that you need. You need to know who the professor is before you can betray the team and have it matter. You need writers to work this shit out. Mm -hmm. I think that they were decent plotters and I think that they were decent scripters, but they couldn't quite take it to the level they need to be. So you've got these books that are gorgeous. Even though you were, you were having issues with certain panels and certain yeah. pages, overall, these are great looking comics, great fucking coloring, seem like they have everything on the surface that you would need, but they're missing some parts on the inside that make them more than just ripoffs. And one thing I think is interesting too is that I mentioned last episode about how Pitt was sort of a cross between the Hulk and Sabretooth. And you may remember Sabretooth got a lot of prominence in the same time period. He got all muscled out by Mark Texera in his solo miniseries. Yeah, he got bigger. And then around the time of Age of Apocalypse, they started having him be an actual member of the X-Men and Joe Matarera was drawing him all beefed out and yeah. stuff. I think that Marvel was actually trying to sell Sabretooth as a Pitt replacement. Nah. And, and unlike, uh, but Pitt was selling great at that time. But And Marvel was doing everything they could to kill Image, fighting over the town and everything else. It makes sense if Pitt comes across that way and all of a sudden you've got Sabretooth in, all, in his solo books and they're making him bigger and bigger. But no, I think they were trying nah, to counter... I, I think that was just the evolution of this Sabretooth character. You don't want to keep him one-dimensional as like this muscle. Because what made him interesting was the, his connection with Wolverine's past. But uh, I mean, he's also a much bigger, stronger version of Yeah, he, he, he won. The whole thing between them is Wolverine ruined his chance to have Alamantium implanted in his claws. He was next, from my understanding of the reading. He was supposed to have claws as well, dipped in it, and because Wolverine escaped and destroyed the whole facility, he never got his chance. They're portrayed as almost similar in terms of healing factors and their veracity for a battle. Points and times they've alluded to them being related. Yeah, them, so yeah. I don't think so, because again, Sabretooth... I think that if you look at Joe Matarera's rendition of Sabretooth, as big as he is, as fangy as he is, there's more to that than you might recall, uh, and you might also remember that Wolverine at this time devolved. But then you could say... He devolved and he lost his nose. I mean, come on. What do you mean? Remember when Wolverine lost the adamantium when Wolverine Yeah, he went off furrow. Right, but he lost his nose, remember? Yeah, he looked more animal. He was supposed to look more animal-like. He lost his fucking nose. Come on, dude. But they, but he was a dumb animal. Like, you couldn't communicate with him. He wasn't covered in chains and fucking ride, riding Harleys. He was, like, in the backyard shitting and digging holes and landing down there. I'm saying between Wolverine and Sabretooth, they were copying a lot of stuff from Pitt. Not so much because Pitt was such a thrilling example of comicdom, but to try to sell But wouldn't you just say audience. Pitt was a ripoff of Lobo, then? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of Lobo, a lot of Sabretooth, a lot of Wolverine, a lot of Hulk. But I think that to some degree, Marvel and DC try to take some of those elements back from them. But just like with uh, Nightwatch at Marvel, basically being Spawn in the Spider-Man titles, why go by Spawn when you get Ron Lim drawing a Spawn alike in the Spider-Man universe? Yeah. I think there was a conscious effort to try to drag stuff back from Image. Image was obviously hugely derivative, but I also think Marvel and DC try to pull some of that coolness factor back from Image. But see, they, was, they could. But, they could. But Image was cool in a one pony trick type thing they didn't have story t 
storytellers. I mean, come on, Age of Apocalypse, when you have Sabretooth and he has uh, Wild Child on a chain, because Wild Child's like this wild, I don't know, like uh, some kind of... Did you just mention Wild Child was on a chain? Yeah, yeah, but on a chain because he was like an animal. But you just, you're making my point, though. You How am I making to... a point? Pitt, if anything, Pitt was more of a ripoff of all the Marvel stuff had going on. What I'm saying on. is that they probably felt like it was due to them. That if you've got Pitt coming out and it has an audience, but the book only comes out once every four fucking months, and besides the quality of Keon's artwork, they could take superficial elements like the chains that were in at that time anyway, like the lack of a nose. But that's superficial. And, and basically make people go, well, why should I spend 250 on Pitt you know, whenever it bothers to come out when I can follow Wolverine with no nose doing the same kind of shit? But they actually had stories to tell. I know. So yeah. they could do image better than image. They didn't maybe have this caliber of artists, but then again, they kept Joe Matarero for a long period of time there. So he was going to be the next Keon for Marvel. <sighs> I don't know, man. I think it's a little bit of a stretch. I think it's a little stretch. I think else than they were all uh, they were all dipping in the same. Yeah, I, I'll I'll give you that more than Marvel was scared that this one little book Pitt was going to bring down the House of M. Well, like okay, I think no, I think no, no, I no, think. No. Look, you got to think about this though. Image Comics debuted, and they were almost immediately the number two publisher after because everybody was speculating. They were all no, hoping to get that, that Superman also, number one Image issue. Image was poaching Marvel's talent. They were oh, yeah. poaching DC talent. They were taking the superstars of tomorrow from Image after the superstars of then. No, no, no. no yeah, they were. No, I mean, there's a get, huge competition. Yeah. between them and a lot of fucking fighting back and forth why is it so impossible that Marvel would look at Image and go well we could take that and do better stories and use our continuity in our universe to draw it siphon off that audience to try to suffocate it in the crib basically I mean they do a lot of that shit just like uh, one of my favorite examples is Gen 13 now, I don't know if you remember but they originally solicited as Gen X and Marvel felt like it was their divine right to have any comic book with the letter X in it Yeah. and I, I was listening to uh, John Wilson's All the Pouches earlier today and he was talking about how Marvel had threatened Wildstorm to prevent them from coming out with Gen X. But I don't know that it's enough for them to say you're having an X in your title is too close to what we want to do. Mm-hmm. And they hadn't started Generation X at that point. Although I think it might have been in the planning stages or it might have been planned after they found out that Gen X was coming out. But what they did do is they rushed out a book called Genetics with Marvel UK. And Genetics would have been closer to Gen X and yeah. basically would have cock-blocked Image from getting their book out. Especially because Gen X was being solicited early in the year of 1993 I think it was and then by the time it actually came out it was the toward the end of the year so that was plenty of time for Marvel to hear that, that book was coming out and actually have a published book and say well we've got genetics you can't do Gen X but, Marvel would do shit like that just like but Marvel already had all the X books X fact to me it almost I felt know, like they, it, it felt like almost like Gen X was like well let's jump on the Marvel train well people are gonna people are gonna be like oh look a Gen X it must be a Marvel book because it has an X in it because we already got Exterminators X, X Factor X-Men exterior I'm sure the like point. the point is Marvel felt like they owned the letter X and would do stuff specifically well, synonymous with all their X their immune characters right but that, again they came out with their book Genetics in the meantime and Gen X can be a reference to both Generation X which those kids would have been mm-hmm. and Genetics since that they were genetically altered by the gen factor that they gave them their powers and Marvel cock blocked them just like they did with Plasma Jim Shooter had launched was going to launch Defiant with a trading card set Plasma and it was going to launch a book and it was going to be like the flagship title of Defiant after he got drummed out of Valiant, right? And so in the meantime, Marvel came out with it again, a Marvel UK book called Plasma. And then they said, well, Plasma is too close to Plasma. You can't do 
a plasm book. And so they had this legal battle over it. And then finally, Warriors of Plasma came out of that to differentiate it from Marvel's book. But only after they'd taken away a lot of defiant startup money through this legal battle. Yeah. Marvel did shit strategically to prevent other companies from succeeding any way they could. They were very aggressive. It's well documented. Hmm. So the, it, in no way does it, do I uh, believe that Marvel wouldn't do that if they could. Anything they could do to dilute images, market share, and appeal. Everybody's. Because they went after Defiant. They went after everybody. They were all, everybody was cutthroat and fighting all over everybody. It's just like when they were talking about that Reiki book and how obviously they were going to try to do a spinoff book about Axiom. But besides the fact that Image had its woes and the market start collapsed during the run of Pit, there's also the simple fact that everybody was fighting over talent. And Del Keon being this hermit living in Canada, hanging out with his bandmates and shit, not really networking as much within, because again, he mentioned the only image artist he knew was Todd McFarlane, the guy yeah. who brought him in Image, right? He apparently talked to Rob Liefeld at some point, but it apparently took a while. And so he's this little hermit dude, and he's not creating his own studio of talent working with him. He's using the same talent as everybody else, Scott Williams and Joe Rubenstein and, and Steve Olaf and Joe Chido. And as the production ramped up at other places, Scott Williams wasn't available to him anymore. Joe Chido went away because he started doing more of his own artwork. And so who the fuck's going to draw Del Keown's books? How is he going to compete with all these other studios when they've already, they're training their next generations or they're hiring established talent and Keown wasn't aggressive enough in getting that done? But I he may have wanted to do spinoff books, but where's the talent going to come from? By the time they, you, the Pit Crew book came out, the anthology book, which would have been the perfect place to be the artist showcase, the only guys they were able to get were like Pat Lee in his early days and shit. They couldn't get the level of talent these other companies had because they were all so competitive. Everybody was snatching up all the talent and unless you had big bucks and I guess Keon didn't make enough money off his decks. But his wasn't talent. this during the time when he was more trying to get his band started up again? And that's Because I remember that was too. a big I remember that was a big deal reading about where he was trying to tour and he was balancing art and touring but and he, he had the home studio that he built. There was like a two million dollar studio if I recall correctly. Yeah. yeah. So he obviously had some distractions that hurt him in the marketplace as well. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not going to give it all like he was a struggling artist that was being but the point is, is all crushed by a horse competition with each other and even if he wanted to compete with these other companies he didn't have the resources to do it because they were already elsewhere yeah. J. Scott Campbell was already at Wildstorm Joe Matarera was getting but drawn were, into Cliff yeah Hanger. but they were already I mean that was the one bad thing about images they were competing against themselves half the time too because exactly. all their own studios were eating each other up from the inside so and Marvel and DC really all they had to do was kind of sit back and you know survive like through nutrition where I remember people like do you like Top Cow better than you like what was the other one um, they had Wildstorm Top Cow Image something yeah, I can't remember there was like five was it like they five or six the talent pool and you had a lot of underwhelming books out there as a result and Marvel I think suffered the most from a lack of talent I think that so many of the good people that were coming up got stolen by Image that they didn't have a lot of good people to work with they basically got by with like Ron Lim and Mark Bagley yeah. you know uh, I'm not trying to diminish their talents but they were never superstars in a way that but these other guys they were did. able to produce stories right right which were I, I as, let's be honest it's crucial if you're gonna write a comic book you need art is great but I know lots of people who will drop a book in a heartbeat if you're writing shit like this yeah and that's part of what the image ended up proving is they set out to show the value of artists and they demonstrated that but they also spotlighted the value of writers and because this is an aging industry with, with uh, older people mostly supporting it if you don't have the writers they're not gonna support you yeah so yeah. don't hire your bandmate yeah. no to be to a write. writer yeah oh that's horrible
Unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to gather the mail, so I'm going to try to piece this together right quick. One thing I definitely want to point out is Odell Abner Dracula. I talked a lot about his original artwork that I was going to put up on the blog, and at the time that we did the blog for our previous episode, he had disabled embedding on his artwork, and I think you could only view it if you were a follower of his, a proof follower of his. So we ultimately didn't put up any of that artwork, and in particular, there's one I really enjoyed that featured Battlestone from Brigade. And you may remember he had the really ornate hair. Yeah. And I think, I'm trying to remember what the exact joke was. I think it was Battlestone saying, I style my head with the souls of the dead. I'm just kidding. I use wires. Yeah. And I actually literally laughed out loud at that. It was just something about the timing on it that I thought was You great. LOL'd? I, I literally LOL'd, yes indeed. Uh, so I want to give him credit for that. And it, it didn't go up on the blog because I couldn't. I'm going to try again. I'll check to see if, if any of the stuff is available. We do retweet it on our Twitter feed. So if you can't see it embedded on the blog, you can scroll through the Twitter Twitter feed or you know befriend Odell Abner Dracula it's worth doing he does some really fun artwork and it's definitely worth checking out uh, I think that our buddy Mac is like his biggest fan loves his stuff and has gotten him to do some like cool specialty stuff like I think he did one where it's anti-spawn versus spawn and uh, there was a, a whole series of Venom ones and a whole series of big series of Bad Rocks ones which we touched on last time so definitely go check his stuff out John Wilson of All the Pouches wrote I listened to the spawn portion of 11 today it went very quick LOL. Because, of course, we didn't talk about the Frank Miller issue at length because it was trash. Ah, uh, here it is. So, Odell had uh, one word spawn saying, Ugh, now what? And anti-spawn says, Hell spawn, I've come for you. Oh, okay. That's not bad. Yeah, shot of anti-spawn anti saying, P.S. anti-spawn rules. Well, that's actually anti-venom, but okay. Sorry, anti-venom, my bad. Richard D. mentioned, if you want Greg Capullo, grab Creech. That is a savage character that needs a serious comeback. I remember Creech. He adds, of Odell after Dracula's art, sweet, thanks for sharing, we retweet, done and done. Luke H. Brown also liked the anti Venom piece, as did Glenn Pappas, Sue Kent, Aunt Debbie at Lawson Is My Vines Mass Designs. Jeffrey Brown wrote, I have this issue of Spawn. I remember how freaky it was with Simmonsville and the demons that live in it. Also, anti-Spawn Redeemer creation in this issue. The way early Capullo drew things had a level of impact when it came to the fight scenes and the gore. Looking at it now, I can see what Grant Morrison was doing adding this into the Spawn mythos, but back when I first read this issue, it was a little confusing, but I can see why McFarlane kept Capullo around after these issues and the angel in the space station with the hollowed out host bodies freaked me out and the method for turning Wynn into Redeemer looks horrifying and since Wynn is an evil son of a bitch his entire body is burning from inside from all the holy energy the powers of Redeemer form we got support from History of Comics on Film Jeffrey Brown John Reed's Comics and podcasts about them Council of Geeks who, who of course referenced as uh, helping to generate this podcast okay Randy Caldwell Kyle Benning likes comics Adam Blackmoon Anthony Joseph who is a big alternate comics fan, Fanholes Podcast, Richard Field, Zach Sally, Collected Edition, Professor Frenzy, Xenophobic Xenophiles, Iowa's Joe, Lizanne Oswalt, Alexter Albury, F.E.D. Haley, Jason Snicked Venable, Carolyn, Riley Silverman, Justice First Dawn, Edmore Teal Productions, Professor Harbinger, Firestorm Fan, Dr. G. Nerdologist, The Hammer Strikes, Robert Romaninko, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, Max Romero, Jennifer DeRoss, Articulated Toy Den, Cash Flag, Anime Freaks, Anime Nostalgia, 
Nostalgia, The 108 Sage, Dr. Ange, Biko Django, Odell Abner Dracula, Coffee and Comics blog and podcast. By the way, Coffee and Comics, a while back, contributed to one of the source books. Basically, at some point, I'd like to cover more of the image source books, and instead of putting all that on you, I figured it'd be a good one to do with some guests. I'm actually open for more guests, particularly for these various source books. So if anybody's interested in that, please reach out to me so I can talk to you about that stuff. I've talked to some of the people that are in my circles about it, and most of them aren't that into image, so they haven't really wanted to contribute, or guys like John Wilson who already have a perfect venue to talk about characters and don't need to do it with us. But So if you are interested, please reach out to us. And click and like. Hi everyone, this is Sean from Image Comics. I'm pleased to announce the first episode of a new podcast, Mirror Image. In this series, image sequential artists talk with other creators in film, music, prose, podcast, and beyond about their shared passions and processes. It's a new venue for creators to reflect on the things they love and dissect how they approach them from different media. A huge thank you to parents for providing the beats, and check back next month for a new episode of Mirror Image. I'm Jackie. And I'm Max. And we are the hosts of Sci-Fi Wire's Deadly Class podcast. The official podcast of Sci-Fi's Deadly Class. Each week, we're going to be breaking down the episode with co-creator and showrunner Rick Remender. We're going to talk to you, the cast, the crew, the creators of the show each week, getting you all the insider information from the series. So every Wednesday, 10 p.m., right when the show starts, we are going to be up and running wherever you podcast. So be sure to subscribe. You don't want to miss an episode. Listen, every week it's going to be super fun, amazing, and informative. And at the end of the podcast, either Max or I will kill the other one. (laughs) Watch your back. There shall come a podcast. A podcast like no other. Defenders Dialogue with Brian Keane and Christopher Golden. Marvel Comics original superhero non-team convenes once again. The Incredible Hulk, the Savage Submariner, the Master of the Mystic Arts, Doctor Strange, and a dynamic supporting cast of Marvel superheroes battle against evil as the Defenders. Without further ado, true believers, here's your hosts, Brian Keane and Christopher Golden, Excelsior. And if, folks, if you needed some geek time with us, Defenders Dialogue is available on iTunes, Android, iHeartRadio, Roku, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and all other platforms via the Project Entertainment Network. Check them out. This is a fan-produced, not-for-profit podcast. No copyright infringement is intended. Any use of copyrighted materials believed to be covered under fair use. If you don't agree, you can go straight to hell!